You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 22nd of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The Briefing is brought to you in association with Allianz Partners. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Tom Edwards. Coming up on today's programme, China's top diplomat Wang Yi is in Moscow to meet Russia's President Vladimir Putin. We'll look at what the visit reveals about Beijing's view on the war in Ukraine and how it may impact the peace plan China has promised to unveil. Staying with Ukraine, this week it will have been one year since Russia launched its full-scale invasion. We look at the impact of the conflict on the country's artists. For over more than 200 years, Russia has been a shadow over Ukraine. One could even say that 40 or 50 percent of Russian culture is built on the bones of Ukraine. And on a hopefully more positive note, Monocle's Laura Kramer will also join me in the studio with some of the week's most exciting Headlines in culture. Laura, what have you got? We'll be talking about free museums in L.A., a Wes Anderson-inspired exhibit in Japan, and season three of White Lotus. I can't wait for that. All that and more ahead here on The Briefing with me, Tom Edwards. China's top diplomat Wang Yi is meeting Russia's President Vladimir Putin in Moscow today, the first visit to Russia by a Chinese official in that role since the Kremlin's full-scale invasion of Ukraine began nearly one year ago. Moscow's the final stop in Wang's eight-day international tour. It's also included visits to France, Italy and Hungary, as well as Germany for a security conference. Well, for more on this, we're joined now, I'm delighted to say, by Steve Shang, Director of the China Institute at SOAS, the University of London. Good afternoon to you, Steve. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Um, Tell us about this. Uh, It's a big story, right, that uh, Wang is meeting Putin? Yes, it's a big uh, story. I think he is laying the groundwork for a later visit by Xi Jinping to Russia to meet with Putin. So, yes, it is a big deal. And tell me, in your view, Steve, what do you think they'll be discussing? I mean, plainly, the the, the conflict will be front and and centre. Give us your best guess of what the agenda might look like. Well, I think Wang Yi would want to reassure Putin that China supports him. Uh, He may well also explain that there is a limit to what that unlimited friendship would mean. What the Chinese are very unlikely to want to do is to supply weapons or ammunition to Russia directly at this stage, because that will trigger secondary sanctions, which the Chinese government is not prepared to do. He may well also be exploring with Putin what kind of a peace deal would be agreeable to Putin and therefore Russia. And China may want to follow fairly closely to those when it devises its own so-called peace uh, arrangement. Uh, well, yeah, I think that's really interesting and perhaps the crux of the issue, which is that China has signalled that it's going to come up or try to come up with this peace plan of its own to solve the the Ukraine conflict. What do we know about it at the moment, Steve? Because from reading around the story, it appears some of the solutions are predicated on things like zero Western military support for Ukraine, which don't seem particularly pragmatic, uh, to say the least. What do we know or suspect about what that peace plan might look like? Well, I think what the Chinese want for a peace plan is for Russia to be able to uh, stop the 
fighting, get out of it and stay in a relatively strong position and not really too worried about whether Ukrainian territories are being held by Russians or not. That is a condition that I don't think will be acceptable to Ukraine. It's also unacceptable to either uh, the EU or the United States. So I would be very surprised if the Chinese police plan is going to get anywhere. Uh, well, yeah, and I wanted to pick up on something you mentioned earlier or alluded to it, Steve, which was this sort of no-limits partnership that the Chinese and Russia launched. Well, actually, that partnership was just before the invasion, wasn't it? And that made for a great deal of anxiety, whether that was in Washington, D.C., here in London, uh, across the, the, the Western uh, nations. Tell us about the concerns uh, that they have about the nature of China's support to Russia, because you've already suggested that China won't uh, provide military support directly for fear of its consequences. But what concerns are there, particularly from the United States, about uh, what that might look like in terms of aid via other proxy players or by other means? Well, I think the Americans and others are concerned about the Chinese declaration of unlimited friendship and partnership with Russia, because they kind of take it almost at face value. And it could potentially mean confronting not only Russia, but China, and with the economic break with China, which would have enormous consequences for the rest of the world. Now, the reality is that Chinese foreign policy is guided by a China first principle. And that being the case, China would not want to be paying a price for a Russian misadventure, even though China supports that misadventure and sees it as a justifiable self-defense operation by the Russians. Well, let me wrap up, Steve, by asking you precisely about that China first emphasis then. Obviously, uh, economics is always front and centre, and China will be minded that you know, the conflict has had this significant impact on the global economy. How concerned do you think Beijing remains about the tail of uh, that economic impact? And what will that mean for uh, Beijing's own uh, figures, their own grasp of uh, the growth trajectory for for, for China? Is there a sense of what Beijing makes of uh, the length of that tail and the ongoing impact that the conflict is having on a global economic basis? Well, they are concerned about the economic slowdown in uh, Europe and in America because they would that would have consequences for Chinese exports. Um, there are also consequences in terms of uh, supply availability of Western investments and uh, technology for China. But they also see the war as uh, giving them opportunity to strengthen their economic relationship with Russia on terms that are favorable to China. For example, the Chinese are increasing energy import from Russia, but at a kind of friendship price, rather than at the market rate, which somewhat uh, reduced the impact of the increase in energy costs worldwide as it applies to China in 2022. Steve, always uh, great to hear from you. Thanks very much for your time today. That was our friend uh, Steve Shang, director of the China Institute at SOAS in London. Now, let's cross and hear from Monocle's Emma Searle. She's standing by with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Tom. Shamima Begum, who left the United Kingdom at the age of 15 to join the Islamic State, has lost a legal case over her British citizenship, meaning she will no longer be able to return to the country. 
In 2019, Britain's then Home Secretary, Sajid Javid, stripped her of her British citizenship, leaving her detained as an IS supporter in a camp in Syria. South Korea's fertility rate, already the lowest in the world, has dropped further in the latest setback to the country's efforts to boost its declining population. For every 100 women, 78 babies are expected to be born throughout their lifetimes, down from 81 a year earlier. The plummeting birth rate has stoked worry that a declining population could severely damage the South Korean economy, currently the 10th largest in the world. And the family of Malcolm X has announced that they plan to sue the FBI, CIA and the NYPD for the civil rights activist's death. Malcolm X was murdered in 1965 and his daughter claims that U.S. officials fraudulently concealed evidence that they conspired to and executed their plan to assassinate her father. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Tom. Thank you very much indeed, Emma. We will have the latest headlines for you uh, just after 1300 here in London in around three quarters of an hour. Now, all this week, we're running a special series across Monocle 24, looking at Ukraine and how the conflict has disrupted lives, society and the whole country. Ahead of the one year anniversary this Friday, for many there, continuing artistic endeavours becomes impossible as normal life is put on hold. In the third part of our series, Monocle's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs explores the role played by cultural pursuit in wartime, both within and without Ukraine. She talked to the poet and essayist Andrei Libka, who's shunned writing to focus on volunteering for the war effort, and Petr Doroshenko, director of the Ukrainian Museum in New York City. For over more than 200 years... Russia has been a shadow over Ukraine. And with that shadow, it also covered in a very big way the whole aspect of Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian art, literature, music, etc. One could even say that 40 or 50 percent of Russian culture is built on the bones of Ukraine. It's fascinating on how the 200 years of Tsarist, Soviet, and now Putinist kind of um, periods have really russified what has always been Ukrainian. And it's, for the rest of the world, it's just too easy to to accept that and to not think about what is Ukrainian, what's the difference between Ukraine and Russia. Let me just lump it into Russia. Well, that's changing. In times of conflict, life as you know it is put on hold. But what is the role of arts and culture during this time? Andrew Lubka is a Ukrainian writer, essayist and translator. His published works include three books of poetry, short stories, essays and three novels, many of which have been translated. But he's not currently writing. I can say that my work actually not only changed, but since a big war started uh, one year ago, I didn't write some fiction or essays, uh, I don't know, literature uh, in broader sense. Uh, Now I am focused on helping Ukrainian army. I use my writer's renommee. I use my writer's connection. So in in some way, it is the continuation of my cultural work. But I work with my audience, with my readers who have read my books before, who visited my talks and discussions and so on. And now they are my donors because they support my activity. Andrew uses his public profile to raise funds and to channel them into the war effort. He's visited the front line 18 times over the past year. As well as delivering jeeps to the army, he takes chocolate and coffee, the kind that he describes as previously found in Ukraine's hipster cafes. 
But will he return to writing? You know, it is a very hard question for us because, first of all, when I am thinking about the future, first of all, I am thinking about the way and possibility that I have to survive, first of all, as a physical, biological being, because it is the biggest threat. And if I will be alive after the war, if I will survive, I'm sure that my writing, my uh, my books will be very different from what I have done before, because this time changed us crucially. Probably I will write something about this experience, about people I have met during this year, about living under the war uh, circumstances. But also it is highly possible that I will write something which is completely not about the war, because this experience is very hard and psychologically it is very black. And probably after the war, for me, it, it would be better to, to write something about in some new, completely new genre, maybe some kind of fantasy about or some kind of utopia and to write about something good and bright. So I'm not sure what I will be writing. I want to continue my writings after the war. Uh, I miss this feeling when I'm typing on my computer. But first of all, and my main goal now, is to survive in a very biological, physical sense. While those within Ukraine are having their artistic endeavours sidelined as they focus on the war effort, organisations outside of the country play an important role picking up the mantle. One such institution is the Ukrainian Museum in New York, the largest arts organisation outside of Ukraine dedicated to the country's arts and culture. Founded in 1976, it began as an artist's collective, which started to accumulate art from the diaspora and to create an archive on Ukrainian immigration to the US. Now, the purpose-built museum houses temporary and permanent collections, and it's headed by Peter Doroshenko. He became director in September, months into the conflict. There has been obviously a lot of focus on all arts organizations outside of Ukraine, uh, and not just Ukrainian-based, on the war. And so it's a balancing act because an organization such as the Ukrainian Museum doesn't want to become a war museum, but yet at the same time, we do have to address it. So it's, I think, for anybody working at a museum, kind of a, a tightrope, but it's important for us to, for our visitors to know what is actually happening with art and culture in Ukraine during this war period but yet also not to forget the success stories and, and the, the robust kind of uh, history of Ukraine and how it pertains to art and culture. The museum showcases Ukrainian culture in New York, but it also helps organizations safeguard arts and culture in Ukraine. One of their key missions is to be at the forefront of decolonizing Ukrainian culture. You can already see this taking place as institutions like the Metropolitan Museum in New York relabel work as Ukrainian rather than Russian. First of all, Ukrainian art and culture is, you know, centuries old. Most recently, in the last 200, 300 years, the traditional arts and crafts have kind of come to the forefront. And for the last 100 years, they've always been there. This has always been downplayed by the Russians on, you know, little villages and little, you know, settlements making their cute little artwork. But that cute little artwork is actually uh, something that has influenced all the great Ukrainian and Eastern European artists, such as Kazimir Malevich, Vladimir Tatlin, the list goes on and on. 
Peter Doroshenko, director of the Ukrainian Museum in New York, and Andrei Lipka there, speaking to Monocle's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Listen out for more like that all through this week here on Monocle 24. The Concierge from Monocle, brought to you in association with Allianz Partners, is coming soon to Monocle 24 and all good audio platforms. Just like Monocle's editors... Allianz Partners is committed to helping you build exceptional experiences whenever you're traveling. That's what makes this a perfect partnership. The Concierge program brings all the best of Monocle's award-winning and beloved coverage of travel from print and digital to the airwaves. You'll hear insider insights and ideas about where the world is heading, plus tips on packing your bags for the must-see destinations new openings, and the loveliest spots to lay your head. So get out there and visit the places, enjoy the experiences, and meet the people changing the world of hospitality for the better. The Concierge, in association with Allianz Partners. It is 17 minutes past midday here in London. You're back with The Briefing on Monocle 24. The presidential election in Montenegro is less than a month away and we still don't know whether the incumbent is going to stand. Milo Djukanovic has led the tiny country one way or another for almost all of the past three decades and his potential opponents, well, they're already crying foul. Monocle's man in the Balkans is Guy Delaunay and he can tell us more. Good afternoon to you, Guy. Hope Ljubljana is treating you well. Um, for those of us who haven't had the pleasure. Remind us, who is uh, Milo Djukanovic? He is Tom, Mr. Montenegro and in, in that shape and form he is the leader of the Democratic Party of Socialists and since 1991 when he hasn't been Prime Minister he's been President and when he hasn't been President he's been Prime Minister and uh, you know there were a couple of little teeny tiny breaks in between some of those stints but nothing really that you could uh, uh, stick a, a rolling cigarette paper in between really and uh, his opponents have of course long claimed you've, you've got somebody who's in power for that long three decades you won't be surprised to hear that his opponents claim uh, he's in power not because he's a, a a wild and beautiful man but because he's constantly tilting the game in his favor and that's exactly what they're saying right now well this is what i was going to ask you there are suggestions aren't there from his opponents that he's stacking the deck somewhat um what exactly have his opponents been saying so I was getting all rather excited uh, with my predictions uh, ahead of this week, saying to people, oh, look, there's an interesting new candidate leading the polls in this race to become the next president of, of Montenegro. And that was uh, the leader of the Europe Now movement, whose name is Malojko Miki Spajic. I say it's called Miki Spajic because he's spent a lot of time in the United States, a former Goldman Sachs banker. And he and I have something in common. We both went to university in Osaka and uh, <laughs> were educated in Japanese. So this is a guy who speaks six languages fluently, um, would be very technocratic, would put uh, Montenegro firmly on the road towards European Union membership, or at least that's pro his professed aim. Um, I'm not saying he's going to be amazingly uh, uh, liberal in his social policies or anything like that, but it would make a change from the usual flavour of, of, of head of state in, in Montenegro. Come the end of the weekend, I discover that uh, he's been disqualified by the State Election Commission uh, for having Serbian joint citizenship. And uh, he's saying that this isn't fair. He's applied to revoke that citizenship. And he suspects that the State Election Commission has lobbed out his candidacy because, surprise, surprise, there are supporters of Milo Djukanovic on that said commission. 
Uh, well, that being the case then, and with the demise of, of Mickey, does this leave the way clear for a sort of unhindered run then for Milo? <laughs> Well, you know, you'd suspect that, wouldn't you? Because he was running second in the polls and he is very much a known quantity. Um, But he still hasn't declared his intention to run. He's got, let me look at my calendar, four days uh, before the deadline falls for candidacy. And at the Munich Security Conference, where I know Monocle 24 was getting busy with lots of different things, uh, I don't know if they ran into Milo there, but uh, he was making noises about being tired after 30-odd years in charge. Uh, But nobody's really taking this too seriously. You've got analysts in Montenegro saying, for heaven's sake, who else at the DPS party going to get to run now with less than a month before the presidential election that they would have to, you know, set up a whole campaign for when Mila Djukanovic is, if he's Mr Montenegro, he's certainly Mr DPS. His party really doesn't have another credible candidate uh, that they could run at this late stage. So everybody is is expecting him to declare. Uh, but whether all the shenanigans involving this uh, disqualification of Mickey Spyich will count against him, um, that's something which uh, is a bit of an X factor. Yeah, and I was going to ask you, because the DPS, it's not all gone their way. Uh, They failed to form a government after the last election, and that is not something that happened very often, or perhaps even at all over the last few few decades. So it's not like everything has gone Milo's and the DPS's way. No, it hasn't. And that uh, when they got uh, emptied out at the last election, I mean, it wasn't a, if you, it wasn't a dramatic emptying out. It wasn't like their vote crumbled to nothing. They were still actually got more votes than any other party. But the opposition managed to cobble together a coalition. And that's the first time we've seen a parliamentary coalition which didn't include the DPS um, since well before Montenegro's independence in 2006 and going back to the start of the, the, the Yugoslav conflicts in 1991. So that was a significant moment. But these coalitions that we've had in, in the government since, one of which then later on did include the DPS, they've not been particularly stable. And this, of course, enables uh, Milo Djukanovic to say, well, look, at least you had stability um, when, when I was around. And, uh, you know, for some people, of course, that's going to be seductive. But if last year's municipal elections were anything to go by, a lot of the electorate don't feel that way. They, the DPS lost the capital uh, Podgorica. And, uh, you know, that's a, if, if you're looking at the way the wind is blowing, perhaps it is now blowing against the DPS a little more strongly. Guy, look, I, I guess some uh, listeners to this, they might be in Brussels or Zurich or maybe they're across the pond stateside and they might say, you know, Montenegro is a pretty small country, tiny really, in fact. Um, why should we pay a- attention? And I, I, you've, you've kind of alluded to a couple of things there already. Um, a friendly option, maybe a, a known quantity. Um, we maybe look back to kind of NATO membership, EU accession talks. There are quite a lot of reasons why this matters more than the size of Montenegro itself might suggest. Yeah, well, Montenegro is a NATO member state. It's in a very key position on the Adriatic coast. And uh, that Adriatic coast is now entirely made up of NATO member states, all the way from um, Slovenia and Italy uh, at the top, going all the way down to Greece at the bottom. And that was much to the chagrin of Russia, uh, which has been interfering in Montenegro uh, before and after that NATO accession a a few years ago. So he is seen in in a good light by the powers in the West. And, you know, you often get 
get the criticism in the Western Balkans, that the Western powers favour what people call stableocracy, even if somebody is maybe a little bit lacking in the democratic department, if they're seen to be pliable and uh, favourable towards Western policies, then people don't just put up with them, they actually favour them, um, because they know it's a known quantity, they know that the West is going to get the kind of results that it wants from those people. Mila Djukanovic would be firmly in that bracket, according to his critics, and critics uh, of the way the West approaches things. Guy, fascinating. Uh, as always, we'll be keeping a, a weather eye on that one. Thanks for joining us today. That was Monocle's Balkans correspondent Guy Delaunay joining us here on The Briefing. Finally on today's programme, that is the sound of a gear shift because Monocle's Laura Kramer has joined me to round up some of the week's more interesting cultural stories. Laura, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Tom. Um, Where shall we start? Let's go stateside. Really interesting story uh, from the West Coast. What's this one about? That's right. So in LA, we're seeing that more and more museums are uh, having free admission. And it seems like it's becoming the the biggest free admission kind of experiment in the United States. A few museums had done it. So the Museum of Contemporary Art had started at the start of 2020. Before that, the Hammer Museum in Westwood was free from 2014. And now the latest one to to join this club is the Orange County Museum of Art, which has promised 10 years free admission. And now what's interesting is that they are seeing a massive influx of people going to the museum. Shocking, wouldn't you believe believe it? For example, the the OC Museum of Art has seen more people come through in the past three months than it has in the past four years. So more than 90,000 people have kind of come through. Um, The Getty Museum is also free, but it has been free for a while, but they are also charging a little bit of extra parking fee. So the question is, how are they affording this? Because not only are they losing the money in the tickets, but also the um, the annual uh, 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 subscriptions for people coming through are also not being subsidized. So what is happening is we're seeing a lot of donors and big donations from big names being offered up to these museums in order for them to keep kind of this going for a little bit. And it's putting pressure on some of the other museums in the area to potentially consider going free, going the free route. Uh, it's really interesting. And I guess that point about funding is particularly interesting if you look at the sort of municipal story for Los Angeles, a city under a great deal of pressure. And there may be those who say, well, you know, we shouldn't be worrying about access to culture. But it's interesting. Earlier in the programme, we're hearing about the critical import of that cultural story in Ukraine, for example, during a time of war. In straightened times, people must enjoy their, their, their culture. And those numbers are amazing. Presumably, these museums are also getting smarter at leveraging that huge increase in footfall to make money in other ways, concessions and products and all the rest of it. So uh, hugely interesting. I guess I wonder, Laura, is this something that we could see, I don't know, elsewhere in the US? I mean, LA is an outlier in so many ways, isn't it? Maybe hard to extrapolate. We'll need to wait and see what the free admission experiment tells us over maybe a slightly longer time frame, do you think? Absolutely, because I think the annual membership aspect of it is worrying places like in Chicago, San Francisco, New York, where we do have some of these other really big museums that we look at. But it is nice to see that they, you know, for example, the Orange County Museum of Art has raised two and a half million from uh, Lugano Diamonds, and they're getting all these 
big, big um, uh, grants in order to make this happen. It's actually putting a little bit of pressure on George Lucas, of all people, who's got a uh, museum opening in 2025 in two years here, the Lucas Museum of uh, Narrative Art. So far, they've not announced that it's going to be be free, but we could see what happens down the line. I believe George (laughs) Lucas has a bob or two. He could probably pay for that himself. He's a billionaire. (laughs) If you're listening, George, come on, pony up the money. Um, Let's change tack. Uh, A new exhibit, uh, well, not a new exhibit, but an exhibit that's going to Tokyo. I like this one. Yeah, so Wes Anderson, you know the filmmaker. Are you a fan of his films? I'm a big fan of his films, of his aesthetic, of his general vibe, Laura. And that's it. It is is kind of an exploration and a love letter to this, to his vibe. So there's this Instagram account that went, you know, viral accidentally, Wes Anderson, where people send in travel photos that kind of look like they would fit in a Wes Anderson film. So they are, they're symmetry, they're bold, they're eye-catching, colorful, pastel colors. Um, And and basically people send in these photos and it's, it's got huge millions of followers. And basically they took this on the road, these photos, and they put them in a museum in Korea in 2022. And it was at the time that people were really longing to travel, obviously, post-pandemic. And it did incredibly well, very luckily, for uh, the people in Japan. It is coming to Tokyo this April, and it's going to be there until May. So featuring really beautiful, artistic photos that inspire you to think about Wes Anderson films. So particularly for our uh, Tokyo listeners, maybe you've not quite got back on the plane (laughs) yet. Uh, You can travel around uh, through the medium of of great photography. uh, Highly recommended. Um, Let's keep things, well, let's keep looking a bit east. Laura, this is a story that I am very excited about. I was put on to this programme by a colleague here at Midori House. I've then tried to pay it forward. And I know I've essentially compelled you to watch it as well. It's White Lotus. And we know a bit more now about the much-anticipated third season. Yeah, it's definitely spread. So the much-anticipated third season, it looks like it's going to be taking place in an Asian hotel. Yes, it's been revealed. So the Berlin International Film Festival is happening now. One of the series uh, executive producers, David Bernard, is there, and he's basically confirmed that they've tried to work in Asia a lot, and hopefully season three will be their chance to make something happen there. How exciting. And now we can start dreaming about the cast, about the ideal cast listing for this. Uh, Well, this is a funny thing, because, of course, uh, Fernando, who's a bit of a connoisseur, of all things televisual, but White Lotus in particular, he he's, he seems to know this stuff even before even before the trades get get wind of it. And I guess that is the point. Who's going to be? There'll be some characters we know won't be reappearing. Spoiler alerts! If you haven't finished season yes. two yet, um, do you have any particular favourites you want to see again? This kind of does give it away, so do forgive us if any if this ruins it for any, any I love, listeners. I love Aubrey Plaza in it. I thought she was fantastic. I would love to see her kind of leaving Ethan and <laughs> exploring what's happening in Asia. There you go. I don't know if they've written the scripts yet, but try and try and keep Laura happy. Factor in some of these plot points. Uh, Laura, uh, excellent tales and a couple of stories we've got to keep a, a close eye on as well uh, from the cultural realm. That was Monocle's Laura Kramer. My thanks to her, as always. Um, that brings us to this edition of The Briefing. A big thanks to our team behind the glass, our producer, Marco Sippi, our researcher, Andre Nikolai Pamentuan, and our studio manager, Nora Holt. The briefing is back at the same time tomorrow. That's noon here in London, 1300 CET, uh, bright and early in the AM if you are listening. Stateside, I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening.